Okie dokie. Oh. A podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing to work our way through the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 49. Last week we had two very drama-filled episodes with Jesus and his disciples. They were traveling across the Sea of Galilee, and a major squall arose while they were on the boat, and Jesus was asleep, and then he woke up because his disciples were fearful of their lives. I mean, understandably so. Um, And then we get this picture of there seems to be things behind the scenes that Jesus can see with like creation and maybe some spiritual things beyond that with him telling the waves to be still and to shush and everything. And the, the, the disciples were wondering who this could be after Jesus was telling him, telling them about their lack of faith, which is a very poignant and spurring type of a comment in that kind of scenario. And then we right. left off with Jesus having this interaction with this demon-possessed man, and we get this dynamic that we haven't seen yet with exorcisms with Jesus, where he's telling the demon to come out, and he hasn't come out yet, and Jesus and the demon seems to have some type of previous history, Um, and now we're going to see what happens with demon, what Jesus is going to do to it. Yeah, yeah, and remember we even talked about uh, the guy, he said his name was Legion, we didn't know if it was his real name or not, but in a Roman Legion was four to 6,000 men, and there were also animals involved, everything, so so we're trying to figure out, what what was this demon really trying to communicate? So yeah, let's keep reading and see what we can find. We're looking at Matthew chapter 8, verses 30 to 32, also Mark chapter 5, verses 11 to 13, and Luke chapter 8 verses 32 and 33. I think I'm going to go ahead and read from Mark. So here we go. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Well, this is kind of weird, and it's also answering a few questions. So it's kind of, I don't know. But Samuel, I got to tell you, I'm reading about all these pigs and everything. I got to, there was this lady. She's from the city, grew up in the city, you know, she didn't know anything about rural life or farms or any of that kind of stuff. But she worked for this company. They were going to send her out and they had some small location kind of in a, in a rural place. She had to go out there and <laughs> she gets down to this airport, it's kind of a small airport, whatever. And they, they literally had a farmer come and pick her up from the airport to take her where she needed to go. It's totally outside of her her normal box, right? But they're driving down the road. She's just kind of looking around, enjoying the scenery, all of that. And she goes, oh, look, a bunch of pigs. And the farmer goes, herd. And the woman goes, herd? Herd of what? 
The farmer says, herd of pigs. And she goes, well, of course I herd of pigs. And the farmer goes, no, it's a pig herd. And she goes, what do I care what a pig herd? I have no secrets from a pig. <laughs> you got to throw in those dad jokes anytime oh, you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where else am I going to get to tell them? So anyway. Just perfect platform. Yeah. So there you go. It's one of those jokes that you think is dumb, but you'll never forget it. And you'll probably tell other people to your own shame. But here we go. Yep. So here we got this great herd of pigs. And you remember, Samuel, we even had that question. If only we knew how many pigs were in a great herd. Now we do. And how many were there, Samuel? 2,000. That's right. 2,000 pigs. So you got to think. We were wondering how many demons were in this guy. And there's 2,000 pigs. And then you, you, you'd sort of see in the story that they all appear to act in concert with one another, running toward this, it's either a cliff or steep bank or whatever. And, and I mean, everybody's acting together. So you kind of got to think that at least maybe all of these pigs got their own demon, at least one. So maybe when this guy said his name was Legion, suggesting that there were thousands of them, maybe he really wasn't exaggerating all that much at all. That is a lot of demons. Well, and it's also possible that the connection between the actual number with the Roman Legion, four to 6,000, those numbers are still divisible by 2,000 pigs. So yeah. you could have two demons in every pig, you could have three demons in every pig, and that still would uphold the case. Yeah, yeah. It's just, ah, it's just such an amazing thought. But, but, if we, let's, let's not go too far, just stop for a second. The demons begged, send us to the pigs. Now, we asked questions like this before. Why did they not want to go out of the country? Why did they not want to go into the abyss? Well, now, why do they want to go into the pigs? It kind of suggests that demons, in general, would prefer a host. And so in this case, you can see they prefer an animal to having no human host. And that actually, that just reminds me of Lord of the Rings. What do they eat when they can't get hobbit? Well, who do they inhabit when they can't get human, right? <laughs> So, uh, but, but, you know, that's, it's just weird things about demons that you never really think about or whatever. But then they ask, can we please go into the pigs? And Jesus actually gives them permission. I don't know about you. You tell me, I think that's very surprising. It, it almost makes it kind of feel like there was a negotiation going on. Does that seem like anything you would ever expect between Jesus and, you know, anything, anybody, anywhere? Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I don't think so. I, and, and the thing is, Jesus gives them permission, and I can't really come up with any good reason why he would have or why that would have made any sense. Except maybe one, and totally making this up here, but you know, in a way, it was kind of an easy offer that they were giving to Jesus. Hey, if you'll just let us go over there, we'll just leave. You don't even have to work hard. So, so there's that. 
And it resulted in this major catastrophe, all these pigs dying, which, like it or not, it was going to bring the entire region's attention to what had happened to the man. So, I mean, maybe we could look at those as some positives, but I don't know. That whole thing is just really weird to me. Especially when they get to the pigs and the pigs don't just, you know, hang out with demons in them. They actually run off the cliff. What's up with that? What? And then here's a question, Samuel. Why would the demons kill the pigs? I mean, I don't know. We get this. It seems like demons have this association with physical life. They prefer to have themselves attached to living things. So why right. would they kill themselves? They just asked, oh, please don't make us go, you know, where, where we have no host. Put us in the pigs instead. And then the... Okay, so then you got to wonder, did the demons really do it on purpose? Or maybe you could even ask, did the demons even do it at all? I mean, we know that generally they're probably bent on destruction and all that, but were they surprised at the reaction of the pigs? Maybe these demons had never been in an animal before. Maybe they'd only been in humans and they didn't know the pigs were going to freak out. I I don't know. And, And forget the demons. What about Jesus? Did he know that this is what was going to happen? He gave them permission to get... It's just a weird story. It's a huge financial catastrophe for somebody, or maybe a a small group of somebodies. It's just total chaos going on. But stop for a second and remember, Samuel, this is all happening because all of these demons are out of this guy and into the pigs. All of this chaos, all of this stuff was for a long time located only within this one guy for years. Now, okay, Matthew said it was two guys. Whatever, you get the point. Can you even imagine what that would have been like for that guy or anyone in his vicinity? It's just crazy. Sounds like pure torture. Yeah. I, and which, you know, goes back to, well, I don't know if they, if, if they were offering some sort of resistance to Jesus because there were so many and them offering to go in the pigs, if that was like, you know, kind of an easy way to free the man or whatever, well, you know, it would be understandable. I'm not saying that's what it is. It just, it's, it's something to think about, but here's the thing, uh, just a, a little side note. Remember where they are. Samuel, they're over in the Decapolis, which is primarily what kind of people? The Gentiles. Yeah. And so, remember, the demon calls himself Legion. And now, if if there was a Jewish audience around hearing that, they would have made an immediate association with Rome. And, uh, okay, maybe the Gentiles would too, but let's go a little further. Because Jesus exercised the demons, Jews would more likely make an obvious connection or, you know, they, they would think that there was an allusion to Messiah expelling Rome, which was the more common expectation, right? We just did all those parables saying the kingdom starts small and grows, but they all expected it to happen quickly, right? So in a way, it's kind of a good thing it happened in Gentile territory because it might have actually caused more confusion for Israel and even maybe some of his disciples. Mm-hmm. That is interesting. Yeah. All right. So I, I, that's not the end of the story, though. 
So the demons come out, they're in the pigs, they go over the side of the cliff, and let's go on. We got Matthew chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, Mark chapter 5, verses 14 to 17, and Luke chapter 8, verses 34 to 37, and I think I'm just going to stick with Mark. Kind of, I don't know why, I'm I'm just kind of liking the way Mark's doing the storytelling. So here we go, verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus, to depart from their region. Now, not all of that is intuitive, is it? No. No. This is kind of weird. So, all right, you got these herdsmen, and and they fled. Now, we think about that word. We don't think much of it. They just ran away. But, you know, part of the, part of the, the meaning that's trying to be conveyed here is that they escaped. So this whole event had to be pretty traumatic for them because from, you know, the way they're telling the story, for them, it's like they had to escape what was going on, right? But when they did, they told everyone they could. They told them in the city, they told them in the country, pretty much everywhere. And whatever they were telling people, people were interested and they wanted to come out and see what was going on. Lots of people came to see. Matthew says, all the city. Of course, we've talked about the hyperbole before. He just means that a lot of people came out to see. Now, Matthew says they came to see Jesus. Mark and Luke say that they came to see what had happened. And so, you know, I mean, imagine what it was they saw. There's there's this, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't use this word, but there's this crazy guy, demon-possessed guy, that they all well, certainly knew about, but they may have even seen him before, but he's acting completely normal. He's clothed, he's in his right mind, he's sitting at Jesus' feet, and so they rejoiced. (laughs) Uh, Not quite. Yeah. They were afraid. And so you you just got to think, well, what was going on in their head? Why didn't they rejoice? It seems like a big deal, right? Well, think about it. Whatever power was acting on that man, that was pretty stinking scary. And so whatever power there was that could overcome that power, well, then that's just that much more scary. So... In a way, you can kind of get why they were afraid. Still seems like they would have been kind of pleased for the guy, but whatever. They were just afraid. That was their overriding emotion. So they hear this story, everything that happened, and once they heard about it, I mean, of course, they all just wanted Jesus to stick around and, you know, fix a bunch of other people. (laughs) Still not. No, they just wanted him gone. Even if they did like the good thing that had happened for this guy, from their perspective, 
the price was just too high. This Jesus guy, he was just trouble. And so they begged him to leave. And I know we finished up the parables not that long ago, and it's still fresh in my mind. This is like another great life metaphor, metaphor, just like in the parables, Jesus, God, the kingdom, whatever you want to plug in there, they will cost you everything in this world, but they're worth it. So anyway, we kind of see that with these people here. They, they thought the price was too high, but they didn't know what they were getting. Yeah, and it. I'm trying to give some space for the visual image, imagery that these people would have seen, trying to put it into perspective, 2,000 pigs. Like, I know that my high school gymnasium, whenever I graduated on commencement night, there were at least 2,000 people in that gymnasium. And then if I picture each one of those faces being replaced with a you know, you could say a juvenile all the way up to an adult-sized pig, and then all of those at one moment jumping off of a a cliff or a, a rock face or whatever, I think that showcases the level of spiritual power and warfare that's going on behind the scenes that people can't see. And, I mean, I think it's very reasonable for people to have had that reaction when they see something like that happen. I mean, yeah. how could you not be startled? Yeah, to act like it wouldn't have been scary is probably kind of silly too. Yeah, this whole thing, I mean, we're reading through the story. We're just trying to communicate what's here. And, you know, quick side note, this whole thing about the spiritual world and demons and angels and this and that and all that stuff. Okay, you, you don't want to find a demon behind every bush. You you know, you're probably pushing it too far. You're giving them way too much credit, whatever. But you also don't want to just act like none of this stuff exists and none of it is real. Somewhere there's that very real existence and, and we need to understand it, accept it, and and understand our relation to it in Christ and all of those things. So we're not going to go any more into it. I'm just saying Man, don't don't blow this stuff off like it's fairy tale. This is real stuff, and it just mm-hmm. it manifests in very different ways today than it did back then. But these are great stark images. So, mm-hmm. all right. So, so everybody's back. They're not liking what they're seeing. Uh, they want him to leave, and and so we continue. This is Mark chapter five, verses eighteen to twenty. In uh, Luke, it's um, chapter eight. It's the end of verse 37 and then through 39. Uh, You know, just keep reading from Mark. He says this. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So out of all of the people 
that either witnessed it directly or they heard the testimony of what had happened, out of all those people, one guy understood what had actually happened there. And okay, maybe two if Matthew was there. I don't know, whatever. (laughs) One guy understands. It was the man who had been freed from the demons and he begged, Jesus, let me go with you. I want to be with you. I want to be one of your disciples. And Jesus said, no. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's just, it feels really harsh. So here's this guy. He's experiencing this great and awesome deliverance. And then he's kept from the master, the mission, whatever. And instead, he's given his own mission. Maybe it seems a little simple. Maybe it seems a little small. But he's given his own mission, and he has to carry it out alone. Wow. There's an image for our lives, our walks. Who knows? Maybe we are in a similar spot. His mission was this. Go back to your home. Go back to your family. Go back to your friends. Real quick, Samuel, is that good news or bad news? Uh, it depends. <laughs> well, we're going to be optimistic and say, man, that was great. <laughs> he gets to go back home. He gets to go back to his family, back to his friends, and tell them what God or the Lord has done for him. Now, uh, just side note, uh, again, this God, this God of Israel, they probably didn't know a whole lot about him. I mean, I'm sure they knew of him. I'm sure they knew it was Israel's God, but they probably didn't know a lot. But as it turns out, and this is a, a kind of a funny thing in the text, he doesn't just tell family and friends, he tells the whole city. And he doesn't tell them about what God did. He tells them about what Jesus did. And now, you know, kind of put yourself in his shoes. Could he even in in any way have understood that Jesus was somehow God in the flesh? No way. His disciples don't even really get that. He probably didn't. And so he, I think, understandably, he told about the one that he had experienced in the flesh. The one who was standing there as a human man, he told about him. And so the cool thing about it, and and maybe the reason it was presented this way in the Gospels, is because it's almost like as a reader, you see that. You see that he was supposed to be telling about God, but he didn't. And he tells about Jesus instead. And we sort of get these blurred lines between God and Jesus, right? Because we know. Well, at least theoretically, if if you're familiar with some of the story, this isn't your first time through it. And so I just think that's a cool way of writing. I think it's kind of genius in its own way. Uh, But anyway, uh, final little bit. Uh, Here's Jesus. Just think of the irony. He's actually telling somebody to go tell everybody about what he's done. Time after time after time, Jesus has been telling the Jewish people where he's been doing all these miracles and things. Don't say anything. Keep it quiet. Now he gets over to Gentile territory and he tells the guy to just go spread the news everywhere. And the reason is because there's just not the same concern. 
not in this area. There is no Herod. Uh, I shouldn't say there are no Romans, but it's 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 not the same, right? It's 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 different. There are no zealots. Uh, there are no messianic expectations. It's just there's not uh, anybody really to get upset over a crazy one-time event, as compared to back in Israel, uh, especially the Galilee. You know, sort of that building movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Another potential factor at play with this guy, are, are we to assume that he is a Gentile as well, based on where Jesus and his disciples are at? Uh, well, I would say yes. Uh, if that is so, in my mind, like a, a reasonable explanation as to why Jesus would say no to him that's not just plain meanness would be, it it would seem like it would come across as very strange for Jesus when he says that like he has come to minister to the lost sheep of Israel. Yeah. And he chooses disciples that are from the same region as him. And then he comes back in this boat and there's this random Gentile <laughs> accustomed to yeah. you know, paganism, that kind of thing. It just it it seemed like it would be a distraction to his calling on his first visitation to Earth and humanity to focus on the chosen people to prepare them to try to enter into the kingdom. Yeah, um, and that it's it seems like a more fitting setting for his apostles after his ascension to be prioritizing the Gentiles ex- more exclusively. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. It's just a great point, for sure. I just, you know, if I was that guy, I don't know, I'd just feel sorry for him. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, totally. If if he really had brought him back, I'm not even sure how we would explain that in in this podcast compared to all of the rest of the study that we're going to do. <laughs> I'd be like, well, I don't know, this is a weird one. <laughs> maybe this, maybe that. Yeah, that's it's crazy. Well, the thing is, that's the end of that story. It really was pretty short. And and so, remember, we had Jesus originally trying to escape the crowds. He goes across, gets over there, has to face off with this demon-possessed guy. Well, now we're headed back. So let's read about that. We're in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 and 19, Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 42. Uh, let's switch it up and read from Mark. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. All right. So, again, we know the story. He escapes the crowds, he goes across, he faces a demon, he comes back, and when he gets here, he's probably back in the Galilee, probably somewhere near Capernaum. Uh, And guess who's waiting for him, Samuel? bunch of people <laughs> the crowds yeah so he he had tried to escape 
but they were waiting for him. And Luke says that they they welcomed him. Like, they're all just still waiting. So, just, again, picturing yourself in this world at this time, these constant crowds, do you think, Samuel, that that had to be some sort of a real stress and pressure on any human, but even Jesus? Oh, yeah, it had to be exhausting. Even the most extroverted person that would have to be draining. Yeah, exhausting is a great way to say it. Yeah, I think that's part of the image we have to keep in our in our uh, heads about Jesus. A lot of times he was just exhausting himself serving people. It's amazing. Now, uh, I, maybe I should mention just, just a little uh, side note, Matthew. Uh, he has this occurring at a very different place in his gospel. Um, it's, it's immediately after Matthew gets called and he has that banquet at his house. That's when this happens. So this just brings up that point of, look, when you're reading through your Gospels, they're not necessarily in time order. Um, We're trusting other people trying to, you know, weave this all together in a time sequence. We don't know how perfectly correct it is or whatever, but, you know, it's got to help. But just interesting that that we're trying to piece it together and and in the individual Gospels, it's going to read very differently. So anyway... Here we have, in this part of the story, a ruler of the synagogue. Okay, well, what does this mean? It was common for a synagogue to have elders, and there were usually a number of them. Their job was to care for the synagogue, to care for the people in the synagogue. Now, I've read some places, you know, they talk about it like it's firm, like, oh, there were elders and there had to be 10. Well, other people say that there were, you know, more than one. But I I think, honestly, it had to depend on the size, right? You could have a small synagogue, and you're not going to have 10 elders. You can have a larger synagogue, and maybe you did have 10. Maybe it was limited to 10. I don't know, something like that. But of those elders, there might also be a few that were considered leaders over the other elders. So maybe you had 10 elders, and three out of the 10 were leaders. So... They were all rulers of the synagogue. Well, Jairus was one of these. Now, it's possible, you know, because you got many people involved here, maybe there were some mixed feelings about Jesus among these guys. But given what we know of the story so far and the way they've been interacting, it actually is more likely that these elders of the synagogue, the rulers even of the synagogue, that they were generally supportive of Jesus and what he was doing. They were fans. I mean, forget all the stuff that they do. They let him read in the synagogue. They let him teach in the synagogue. Uh, Remember when it says that there were some elders of the Jews that came and begged Jesus to help that centurion? Hmm. Remember that story back in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10? Well, Jairus may have even been one of those guys. So this is Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, probably there in Capernaum. And then it says that he fell at his heat. He fell at his... (laughs) (laughs) He fell at his feet. Okay, now, you know, trying to figure out the pronouns here, Matthew... Uh, the, <laughs> the, the pro, the pro man's. 
<laughs> okay. Let's see if we can salvage this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> We both needed to laugh like that. Apparently. Whew, it's hot in oh. here now. <clears throat> oh, I feel better. Yeah. All right. So, you know, so trying to figure out the pronouns, it was it was obviously the ruler who was kneeling at Jesus's feet. Now, Matthew says he knelt. Uh, the other guys, they, they kind of suggest he went further, maybe possibly even putting his face to the ground. Either way, it doesn't matter. This was a humbling display of honor and reverence and respect from from a guy who was likely a very influential religious leader of the people in this area. Jesus, again, we have no evidence that he was ever trained uh, like the, the way everyone else was, all these things. He's showing the utmost respect for Jesus. And I think that's just a cool picture. So, He's a ruler of the synagogue. He's falling at Jesus' feet, and he's imploring him. Now, in the Matthew version, it actually reads that the daughter has actually died. In Mark and Luke, it just says that she was dying. And <laughs> kind of like, well, was it one man with demons or two? It's a pretty big mm. discrepancy, right? Yeah. Well, was she dead or dying? It seems like a pretty big discrepancy. But again, it's, it's eyewitness testimony. It's the way it comes out, and and we shouldn't let it bother us all that much. And for people that think it's, you know, like proof that the Bible's, you know, a joke or whatever, I, I just don't think so. I don't think so. Anyway, Jairus, he has put away all pretense, and he is begging Jesus for help. Now, Luke tells us that it's his only daughter— and actually, if we were to look a little closer at the Greek that's underneath that, it actually seems to imply it wasn't just his only daughter. It was his only child. Maybe important. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And that she was about 12 years old. So you got Jairus. He is showing great faith. If you will do this, she will be healed. He just, he presents it like he's confident. It's, it's awesome. And it's important to see that and notice that because the story is going to change as we continue on. Uh, and then what was it that Jairus asked Jesus to do? Lay your hands on her. Now, the laying on of hands, you've probably all of us have heard this phrase, whatever. Okay, in the scriptures, where does this show up? What kind of things do we see? Well, there's bestowing blessing, and, and you might think of just common, ordinary things like where fathers are supposed to be blessing their children. You might think of examples where we've seen some, some fathers that were dying and they were blessing their sons, that kind of stuff. 
another uh, another way they use laying on of hands is to bestow authority. And we might remember this from something like uh, uh, Moses to Joshua. He was bestowing authority. And, you know, there are other stories where you see it. It's just like a commissioning or an ordination for a task, that sort of thing. Another really big one is bestowing identity. That's like a hallmark of the sacrifices. You put your hands on that animal because symbolically that animal was representing you before God. Mm -hmm. It's a great picture. So that's another one. Uh, Maybe imparting the spirit or imparting gifts. And actually Moses to Joshua is another really good example of that. And of course, there's more uh, in the New Testament. Uh, Healing is another one. We see Jesus, Paul, Peter, and even others doing that. Uh, It's a common cultural practice. And you might even say it's a common cultural expectation. Everyone understood that the actual blessing or authority or gifts or healing or whatever it was that was going on, it was actually from God. There was no actual power originating in the person or in his hands. He was just a conduit, which reminds me of that church I went to way back in the day. Everybody say, I'm a hose. I'm a hose. (laughs) There it is again. So, now, now I know, uh, you know, when I say there was no actual power in the person or in his hands, you know, uh, okay, Jesus complicates the story a little bit. I get it. But if we just, you know, chill a little bit, if we understand Jesus to be walking fully in his humanity, self-limiting his, his God side, his divine side, whatever, and we imagine him filled with the Spirit without measure, well, then he very, very well fits the same kind of understanding. Obviously, he's the greatest conduit ever, sure, but it, you know, he he fits the story. So lay your hands on her. Jairus, the ruler, that he had a, a, a it was a normal expectation. And then I don't even know if you noticed, it was such a simple thing. The man asks, and Jesus consents and goes with him. Just like that. There's no I don't know. I think that's a great picture. It's a little bit of a lesson in it for us all. Of course, you know, the church needs to become something that the world wants the benefit of us for, but nonetheless, we need to be able to just drop everything and respond. I think it's a neat picture. Mm -hmm. And then it says the crowds thronged. It's kind of a weird word, Samuel. You use that one much? Nah. Yeah, me neither. It's basically saying, look, as Jesus was walking, there was a pressing increase of people and activity. So the crowds were already waiting for him. And then as he gets on the shore and begins moving around, it's just increasing more and more. And it's an interesting detail just all by itself, but. It's actually here because it serves as a segue into the next story, which is kind of crazy because we're not done with this story. Here we've got this poor girl. She's either dead or dying. And before we even find out what happens, we get diverted to a completely different story. Mm. Or is it? Yeah. (laughs) Before we divert into that other story, my mind 
went somewhere with a few of these details about Jairus and his daughter. Awesome. Potential nugget, maybe not, maybe I'm stretching, but I think it's interesting that the writer of the gospel puts the detail that the girl is 12. And my mind instantly asked myself, wait, I've heard of a 12-year-old in the Gospels before. That's when Jesus and his parents went to Jerusalem for Passover. That's in Luke 2, 41 through 52. And then his parents are leaving after the holiday, and Jesus stays behind and is speaking with you know, the leaders of the temple. I'm not sure if the Greek behind that could potentially be synagogue, but just just entertain this with me for a minute. What if Jairus was one of those people on that day that Jesus was 12 interacting with the scriptures and now fast forward all these years and Jesus is a grown man and now he's interacting and serving with his 12-year-old child. I just, I don't know. Yeah. That's well, Jairus is probably traveling up there the same time Jesus is because they're the the festivals, right? Everybody's Mm -hmm. supposed to go, so you never maybe he was. So it's it's a good question, yeah. Relating to the 12 year old Jesus, nice Samuel, nice. Anything else? No, oh, that's it. (laughs) Dang it, I was enjoying that. All right, think of some more, leave them one and more. Yes, right, think of some more on the next one. Entertain me, I'll try. So, all right, so let's get on to this other story, because, I mean, it's just kind of weird. Why are we going to talk about this new thing? So it's in Matthew chapter 9, verses 20 to 22, Mark chapter 5, verses 25 to 29, and Luke chapter 8, verses 43 and 44. Mark says this, And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately, The flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Okay. Kind of an interesting story, so let's see what's going on here. First of all, I would like to talk about a woman who had had a discharge of blood. Now, we all know uh, adult women, they have their monthly time. This is something in addition to... To that, and so I want to read a little bit about it, Samuel, from Leviticus chapter 15, verses 25 to 27. It's kind of long, but go ahead and read that for us so people get an idea what this was about. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, 
and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Now, that probably sounds a little weird to us. It's got a lot of detail in it. Let's maybe not be too detailed and just talk about generally. It says, okay, she is unclean. This is like a state of ritual impurity. It's not a sin. But it says that that she would then have the ability to transmit that uncleanness to other things and other people. Now, again, what we read had some specific things spelled out, whatever, but this isn't the only thing, and plus Israel itself had more laws that kind of helped define it more clearly. So I'm just saying, just notice she's unclean, and she can transmit uncleanness to other things and other people. So what does that mean? It means that she, for 12 years, has definitely been prohibited from participating in anything associated with the temple, for sure, anything to do with the festivals, for sure, anything to do with, uh, like, her husband, you know, relations with her husband. All that stuff is out. All of that for 12 years. Now, a lot of people debate about whether or not her presence in the crowd was making everyone she touched unclean, unknowingly. Or if it was limited somehow, maybe maybe it looked something like, well, if it's just general bumping of, you know, clothes together and stuff like that, not big, not a big deal. But if she, you know, reaches out and touches with her flesh, maybe it is or whatever. It's, it's it, whatever. It's a mess and it's hard to know. If we were to take the words of the scripture alone, like what we just read, well, then you'd go, well, that's not really in there. So I guess not. But if we try to glean information just from the whole era and the common understanding and Jewish writings and all those things, it appears that she was. So it's a, it's a tough gray little area, and I, I don't want to come down too hard on either side. Either way, what we know about her is that she is suffering a good measure of isolation along with her physical troubles. So you, at the very least, you can feel empathy for her and, you know, what she's doing, she may be so desperate that, you know, she's out here possibly transmitting this uncleanness, you know, whatever. So it's a very, very interesting picture. But anyway, more about this lady. So it says that she suffered much under many physicians. Okay, here we are. We're all modern and awesome, aren't we? Living here in 2021. And you know what, Samuel, you tell me, when we look back at history and we see what people did and they called it medicine or healing or whatever, what do you think about that? They did some crazy stuff. Yeah, it's kind of scary, right? (laughs) I mean, but again, you know, 2020 hindsight, maybe 100 years from now, people look at us and think we were stupid, whatever. The thing is, That was happening all over the earth. It's been happening all across time. Well, guess what? God's people, Israel, in that particular thing, they were no different. They also had all kinds of crazy cures, and and they often left their patient worse than when they started. So this poor lady, she's suffering much. And it also says that she spent all she had. 
right? We, I mean, it doesn't take long. Very quickly, we get this picture of a woman. She's got to be desperate. She'd suffered a lot. She was looking for relief. She'd spent all that she had. And after all that, she's worse. And she hears reports about this guy, Jesus. All these years of disappointment. She's living in this situation. It must have appeared hopeless. But in the midst of that, she finds hope. Despite 12 years of proof to the contrary, she still believed God could heal her and that this man, Jesus, was the key. She heard the reports. She believed them. In fact, she was convinced. All she had to do was touch his garments, and she would be made well. Now, Samuel, I got to tell you, I'm saying the word 12 a lot. You've already brought up 12, and I've just got, there's a, there's a big payoff coming up, maybe after some more verses or whatever. I'm just okay. letting you know that that's okay. coming, right? <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> yeah. So she, all she wants to do is touch his garment. That's all. And, and now, uh, another thing, uh, I read from Mark, but if you were reading Matthew and Luke, you would find out she only wanted to touch the fringe of his garment. And this is a super important piece of information, okay? She wasn't aiming to touch just any old wear. She was aiming to grab his tzitzit. Now, okay. Yeah, you know what? That came out weird. (laughs) The tzitzit were fringes added on a garment. And they had a very important role. They were... Uh, well, maybe I should describe them first. Uh, they were white, but they had a single string of blue. And for the Jew who wore his talit with the tzitzit on the corners, they represented the commandments. It's like they were there as a remembrance. And Samuel, how many, traditionally speaking, how many laws would the Jews say that there are? How many commands? 613. Yeah. Well, and what's, uh, shoot, now I can't remember the name of that word. Uh, I remember the word uh, gematria or something. It's where you work with yeah. numbers, things like yep. that. Okay. Yep. So there's a connection. The numerical value of the word tzitzi is 600. And a tzitzit is made of eight strings. And they tie five knots in the strings. So 600 plus eight plus five is 613, huh? Man, there's all kinds of numerical hints going on right now. (laughs) It's kind of cool, right? So, you know, you look at all this and and you sort of get this, this picture that she understood the powerful connection between God and one who keeps his commandments. That's why she wanted to grab the tzitzit. That's what they represented. And again, commandments, laws, I would prefer if we could always just call them loving instructions. But whatever, 
She knows what she's going for. She understands the power of a sinless one, one who has not violated any of God's commandments. And you never know, she may also have understood what was written in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. And Samuel, you may as well just read that one out loud, at least the first part. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Oh, this is the cool thing. The tzitzit were connected to the corners of a rectangular garment. It was the talit. The corners were also referred to as wings. That's cool. So the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. That's kind of cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. So anyway, she uh, she comes up behind him and, and she touches. And, and, and I mean, I don't know about you. It seems super obvious that there's this clandestine kind of vibe in the story. She She's trying to sneak. She doesn't want to be known. She's trying to get in and out. She appears to be hoping she just won't even be noticed by anyone, anyone. But then it says that she felt in her body that she was healed. Okay, well, number one, it worked. <laughs> right? That's pretty awesome. Just a touch of the fringe, the tzitzit, that was all she needed. She was healed. But she absolutely knew it because she literally felt it in her body. And I just have to think, out of all the humans that have lived all across time, it's a relatively small number that can relate to what this woman experienced. You'd think she'd kind of be jumping for joy, making noise, whatever, but she doesn't. She remains quiet like she wants to continue keeping it a secret. That's good. Yeah. And, you know, boy, we are just cutting right in the middle of a story. But the next part's going to take a long time. I can't. We're, we, we need to stop. I think that's fair. We're getting to be pros at leaving people hanging on cliffhangers. So that's right. It, we may it, have it to allows start for sufficient wrestling between. Might have to start recording trailers so that, you know. <laughs> well, we're going to stop now, but here's what you can look forward to next time in a podcast. <laughs> that's right. Now, I, yeah, we're never going to fit it. It's close enough to an hour. I think uh, we just need to cut it right there. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie dokie Most podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to, so that you never miss an episode. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.